45 metres back. Bernard Foley's got the lead. It's got the legs, the distance. Hi there and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby. We are the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. I'm your host Mitch. Joined with me this week is both Ando and Lockie. Ando, we were expecting to have you at Taylor Swift this evening, but you've been able to jump on briefly for the pod. Welcome. Yeah, mate. I'm actually out at Homebush Stadium right now. Very, very keen to get on yep. the pod, though. I am just kind of shaking off the expectations of the hundred thousand other women that are other women, hundred thousand women that are around me, and um, really just enjoying this opportunity <laughs> to have a chat with you guys. And lucky you've had a good win this week. The Reds up over the Waratahs, so you're very clucky and, and happy to talk about the rugby, no doubt, this week. Oh, absolutely. Two wins for the Reds. We'll get into it, but I'm very proud, very parochial, ready to rip in. Very good, very good. We will we will get to that uh, a little bit later in the podcast. So what we are doing this evening, we'll start things off quickly with a bit of a news of the week wrap up. So it has been a while since we've done a new segment. So we'll quickly get through that. Some of the big talking points that's happening in Australian rugby at the moment. Um, we do have the sevens going on at the moment. We'll touch on that. We'll give our thoughts on the Wallabies documentary that came out this week. Uh, and then we'll get into the wrap up of Super Rugby Pacific round one. Now, before we do get into that, we have some very exciting news. If you've been keeping an eye on our socials, and particularly if you're a New South Wales Waratahs fan, we have been very lucky to organize a partnership with the Waratahs this year. And the first, I guess, element of that partnership is that we have organized a cheap ticket code for the first game of the season at Allianz Stadium, which is happening in round three. So two weeks time, for $20, you can get gold category ticket, which is normally $50. So that is a fantastic saving for anyone that's interested in getting out there and supporting the TARS. Both Ando and myself are going to head out there. Ando, how excited are you about, first of all, this um, offer that the Waratahs have offered us, but also the opportunity to get in and support the boys this year? Mate, it's absolutely incredible. Um, a really good opportunity to get amongst it and get out and support the Waratahs. I just absolutely love that the club themselves are coming to the party and trying to do as much as they can to get people to fill the stadium and to get a huge and vocal and parochial crowd out there. So I've been hitting up a bunch of my friends as well and giving them the good news of a $20 gold class seating in Allianz Stadium. And I'm actually getting some bites. I'm getting some nibbles. So I'm very, very keen. All you have to do is go to the Ticketek website and go to where you can buy direct tickets for the game. And then you use the password password pick p-i-c-k pick and it will automatically discount those 50 dollar gold seats down to 20 dollars, which is a pretty good deal so i'm very very keen to get amongst it and support the tars hope you guys do too and genuinely if you are a rugby fan living in sydney even if you're not necessarily a new south wales waratahs fan if you're a kiwi rugby fan you're an australian rugby fan you just love sports get amongst it and use the code pick at the ticker tech website to get 20 dollars gold class seats and you will absolutely love the experience alliance is an amazing stadium to go to and i'm very 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 keen for the first home game of the season and both Ando and myself will be heading out to that first round against the Highlanders at home, which is going to be in two weeks' time. So make sure you're putting your diaries. Uh, do get out there. If you're also just a Waratahs fan in general, you're a member, you have a membership, you have tickets already allocated, make sure you head to Tarbar this year. Tarbar is an awesome initiative that the Waratahs have had for the last few seasons. They take the seats away behind the posts down one end of the stadium. They've got a DJ. It's a really lively area. Well, it has the potential to be lively. It hasn't necessarily been as lively the past few seasons but both Ando and I have a dream of having that as a really uh, parochial place for passionate Waratahs fans to get together and cheer on the boys um, have a few beers get in there and just you know support the Waratahs and cheer them on to victory so if you are going out there to that first home game against the Highlanders make sure you do pop down to Tarbar both Ando and myself will be there we really want to make this a really exciting atmosphere and a really exciting place to be in 2024 to support the Waratahs. So make sure you're there. We'll be there. And if you do see us at the game, come up and say hi, because we love to um, get your thoughts on the podcast and just your thoughts on Australian rugby at the current time. Any other thoughts around that, boys, or shall we get into this week's content? Get amongst it. Let's go.
So first up this week, we're going to do our news of the week. It has been a little while since we've had a new segment on the podcast. We've been focusing on our previews for Super Rugby Pacific in 2024. Now the competition is officially underway. So coming up after this new segment, we will have our reviews of round one. But before that, we had some interesting news and some sort of pressing news has come up in the past few weeks that we haven't mentioned yet. So let's dive into the top one. Lockie, do you want to take us away with that first Yeah, point? for sure, Mitch. And really positive news following... Thursday's neck injury to Lalakai Fiketti. So it turned out that um, Fiketti was taken to hospital after sustaining a knock in a pretty standard ruck situation at Daceyville on Thursday training before the Tars travelled to Queensland for their Super Rugby game on Saturday. Um, there are initial concerns around his well-being and obviously still ongoing, but looks like the CT scan was positive. Darren Coleman told reporters before they left that he showed no major spinal damage and no vertebral cracks or things like that. So they're going to stay, keep him in a little longer. They're going to measure him, but a much better result than what we could have seen. And we know how important it is to manage these neck injuries and these neck contacts. So really good news that Lars is going to be okay in the long term. And I think um, as New South Welshmen, you fellas would be particularly pleased, but all Australian rugby fans for what could have been a very serious injury there. So good news to start. And Ando, even more good news coming out of Rugby Australia with their investment uh, into the women's program. Yeah, I had the opportunity. Uh, I was off work uh, last week and I was able to get in amongst the RA announcement of the funding increase for women's rugby. So this is news that broke about a week and a half or so ago and it just really spoke to the long-awaited news that there was going to be a massive cash, well, not a massive, but a good cash injection into the women's game. So a couple of key points that we'll run through. Two-year agreements are on offer for the very first time. The number of top-tier contracts are up from 15 to 23 with the possibility of that number increasing throughout the year players contracted at the highest tier can earn up to 72,458 per year in RA payments for the Wallaroos and Super Rugby women which is a 28% increase from the max last year I will say in addition Super Rugby clubs can pay above that minimum amount as well so it could well be that some of the top players at some of the Super Rugby clubs could be earning more than that too um in addition to that, the every single player will be receiving a minimum payment for playing in the Super W and that the clubs can pay above and beyond that too. All right. So Mitch, we'll just jump back one more if that's okay. I know I've just jumped around a little bit, but in total, there will be up to 45 players, <laughs> 10 more than in 2023, be contracted across the three tiers. And they're essentially like the um, three tiers or pay scales or pay grades within an um, enterprise agreement. And there'll be more opportunity for additional players to be invited into the squad to aid player development. And if those players come in, they get paid basically on a pro rata basis. So that's the details. Um, Mitch, quick takeaway on what your thoughts were with this news breaking. Yeah, it's fantastic. We've uh, we've been pushing a long time for RA to put a little bit more money behind the Wallaroos and the and the female program uh, in Super Rugby and just the whole uh, development pathways for the women's game. And the fact that they have done that, they've been saying for such a long time that something's coming. We've got plans, but we didn't necessarily know what those were. We didn't know when those things were happening. So this has officially been announced. It's it's a positive sign. It's upwards from here. We've already seen the likes of some of the international players that were overseas the last few years come back to Australian shores. So we've got Emily Chancellor, uh, we've got Laurie Kramer, we've got Bella McKenzie, all of these players back in Super W for 2024, which is fantastic that not only are we able to um, pay these these women, uh, uh, not a livable, uh, you couldn't at this point live off necessarily the, the top up that RA is offering, but it's a long way better than it has been in the past. So the fact that we are reimbursing them for their time in such a way that's sort of encouraging them to come back to Australia and stay and play in our domestic competition is such a tick for us and in terms of cohesion and sort of the uh, the influence on the players around them is just a massive positive that when they were overseas, we didn't have that. And we were sort of parachuting back for Wallaroos at the end of the year. Yep. So there's lots of benefits to that, in particularly in terms of returning players. But Lockie, we've got the... Um, Two important appointments in Hamy Fernandez, who's going to be the women's high performance manager across all of the rugby systems within Australia, and the newly appointed Joe Yap. So do you want to speak to perhaps first Hamy Fernandez's role and then Joe Yap as the new head coach of the Wallaroos? 
Yeah, for sure. Hamie Fernandez has come in and been pretty critical in establishing this tiered system and improving it as well. We saw that the contracts increased from 35 to 45 across that space, which is a great growth area. And as well, just facilitating that top up for the additional funding so far. And like Mitch alluded to, um, it's going to be a brick by brick kind of situation. It's not the best step, but it's a great step forward. And they will continue to build from here. Hamie's got a big role to play in that. But so too does Joe Yap, the, the Red Roses veteran coming across from England. And she spoke with media on Monday. She's already been out to Roma to see the Tars Reds trial game for the Santos Festival of Rugby. And from what we've seen from her in the media, she's presenting a pretty clear picture of what she wants for the Wallaroos. And this is what she told media. She said, our initial vision, vision is to be a top four side and to close the gap on the likes of England and New Zealand consistently. These teams are ahead of us for as long as they've been full-time. And these athletes here have been working really hard. So now it's about pushing our high-performance side of things. What we're going to see here, gents, I think is a real concentration of energy and effort in this women's program. We've got Hamy on board. We've got Joe Yap on board. We've extended that top-tier program. And now the Wallaroos has become an even bigger draw card as we head towards World Cup 2025. So really exciting things to come for our Wallaroos, I believe. I know that the Sevens girls have been sort of the golden girls of this generation, but it wouldn't surprise me if our Wallaroos are pushing them in the near future. One thing that yeah, I'm really excited been... to see what can. Sorry, you go, Mitch. You go. No, you go, Andrew. You sure? You sure? You sure? I'll go. Um, one thing that hasn't been heavily reported is that there is going to be the employment of an additional person to assist the players with the transfer from kind of that more amateur approach to a professionalism that they haven't yet had the opportunity to engage with. It was one of the questions that I asked Hamie, which is um, the players obviously being paid more. Good. That should be happening and more power to that and more of that happening. But what else is being done within the high-performance environment to make sure that our girls are set up for success? And the answer to that was the employment of a dedicated person to help them with that transfer with Hamy also creating programs and um, resources in conjunction with Rupa to help the players transition to that professional lifestyle. So I thought that was interesting and it's something that hasn't got very much airtime but was an added element beyond just getting paid more. Mitch, over to you. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight the, uh, I guess we've spoken about it before about this sort of decade of rugby that's ahead, this golden decade that's coming up. And what's so exciting for the women's game is that there's so much potential for these Wallaroos that where they're currently sitting and the current setup without these the new um, things that have just been announced hasn't been good enough. And we've seen that they've the women have performed as be- best as they, they can purely based on talent without the, the adequate time and, and resources put into getting them to that next step. We have a World Cup next year for them. We then have a home World Cup four years later. So we've already seen in Australia how exciting and how much the country got behind the Matildas when they had a little bit of success and they got into the semifinals of the, the Women's World Cup. There's no reason why the Wallaroos can't emulate that, can't do better. There's no reason with the right investment and the trajectory that is currently being taking place that the Wallaroos can't make a home final in 2029. That would be fantastic. And if we can do that, we can get everyone around them that's just going to put rugby back in the spotlight, which is going to be so exciting. We can also sort of see how successful the women's sevens team has been and that we we can take so many learnings from that and apply that to the Wallaroo setup and say that we have the talent to make our women the best in the world. We already have like out of our set, women's sevens team, you'd say that at least five of them are the best in the world, in world rugby uh, it, for sevens. So if we can emulate that in the 15 women code as well, then there's no reason why we can't be winning a home World Cup in 2029, which is just so exciting as an Australian rugby Well fan. said. And on that point, why don't you take us into the sevens update, mate? Well, actually, before we get off the, the sort of the women's 15 side, Lockie, you were over the weekend at Ballymore for the Panina Pacifica's first trial game against the Queensland Reds. Why don't you take us through a little bit of how that went? And for those uh, at home who might not be as familiar with who and what this Panina Pacifica side is, just give us a little bit of context there. Yeah, mate. Panita's a really exciting new initiative. Um, the Australian government is backing it through their uh, Pacific or Sports Program, which is the same funding initiative that helps out the Drua. So it's all connected across sort of rugby-specific diplomacy work. But the Panita Pacifica side is the pearls, and they're a bit like Moana. They combine the best players from Tonga and Samoa, but in the Whitman's elite space. And uh, 
Saturday saw them play their first ever game. It was a Super W trial against the Queensland Reds, who are defending Super W finalists from last year. And it took 77 minutes for the Reds to put them away. Panina were up 7-5 at halftime. They've only been training for a week, but they absolutely took it to Queensland. And it took a really late surge. Um, Waller and Mel Wilkes scored a try late in the piece. Uh, and then um, also one of the US um, Eagles recruits, Charlie Jacoby, scored at the death as well. So really tight hit out, 17-7 at the end. And Panina will also take on uh, New South Wales and ACT Brumbies in Super W trials over the next two weeks. So incredibly exciting to see. It was super, it was actually really emotional uh, being out there at Ballymore and seeing these players get their first opportunity at the elite level, um, some of them, you know, having language barriers between Tong and Samoan and English, some who'd never played together, some who'd never been outside of their country. And to see them get on the field and take it to Queensland was unbelievable. And the entire crowd, I'm pretty sure, was cheering for Panina um, up until fantastic. the death. It was, is- it was totally brilliant. And um, I, wish, I wish the game could have been streamed. I know there's discussions to try and get the next two trial matches um, streamed to some capacity. So I'll find out. Um, when we can but please if you're a fan of women's rugby which you should be go and check out panina pacifica rugby on all your social media handles they've just started an account and it's really incredible to see them go um but i think if they're gonna make a move potentially into super w in the near future um what an addition that would be to the women's game that was my next question i said what what, what, i was going to ask what's the step forward like what's the future look like for panina obviously they've been set up at the moment as um a sort of train and develop system at the moment to trial against the other Super W teams before Super W fully kicks off. Uh, is there talks that they might be included in expanded Super W in future? Not formally at the moment. I know that there's government funding in place for the program uh, through to 2026. So I imagine that we would say Panina playing in trial matches for these next three seasons. Now, It'll be really interesting to see whether after that time it's extended and Panina's formally welcomed into the competition, a bit like when the Drua did their NRC stint and then came into Super Rugby Pacific a few years after the fact. But um, I would have my fingers and toes crossed for it. I think the more teams and the more competition in women's rugby in Australia, the better. And what a wonderful thing to be able to welcome Panina into the competition and have, um, and have what well, that would be seven Australian sides going at it then. So it'd be just wonderful to say australian with quotations there but i uh, know we would oh, be fiji counts. absolutely fiji counts let's need to stop <laughs> winning give the reds a chance yeah well let's keep moving on we do have a few more points to mention and so we've got the vancouver sevens being played as we speak um it, the semi-finals i believe start tomorrow morning um our time so it's been a bit of a mixed result for both the men and the women the women have gone through undefeated which is fantastic um, and they're continuing the form that they've started 2023-2024, uh, the tournament carrying on through. The men, not so successful this week uh, or this tournament, and they have yet to get a win, I believe. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one for the men. I know that they've got a game against, I think, South Africa coming up. I'll have to double check it um, because the men ended up beating Spain. Yes, yeah, South Africa for ninth place at 621. Then- that's right. So set your, set your alarms, get keen for that if you're a real, real nuffy for sevens. But the girls, huge semifinal against France coming up. They've won all their pool games and obviously they're caught a bit. They did it pretty tough. Japan gave them a big scare early on uh, in the build-up to Charlotte Kazlik's you know, 50th World Series appearance, which is an incredible milestone. So congrats to her. Um, the men just got pipped at the post a few times and obviously came up against France with Antoine Dupont. Um, scoring his first ever try in sevens, uh, absolutely scun the Aussies from the Ruckbacks um, and scored one. So exciting to see him in action. But yeah, keep an eye out for our girls. Fingers crossed for another gold. I know that Canada and New Zealand are in the other semifinals. So likely you'd think an Australian-New Zealand um, big dance coming up tomorrow morning. Stay tuned. And that's the other the other element of the sevens tournament or the World Series that I love so much is that things fluctuate and change so much in a, in a matter of weeks from tournament to tournament. So we saw the other week in Perth that Ireland took out the the whole tournament and beat the women in the final. And in pool stages this this tournament yesterday, they got beaten by Brazil for the first time. So that's a, like that's like a minnow team beating a major team, which is just a massive upset. 
But well done to Brazil in that they looked controlled and they were in, in control of that game the whole way through and didn't give Ireland a sniff at all. And that's just one exciting thing about sevens is you just never know how these games are going to go. The form leading in doesn't necessarily much matter for much and it can go either way. Yeah, jump across, get on Stan Sport, check out the Vancouver Sevens tomorrow. Michael Hooper expected to be available for LA Sevens next week as well. So make sure you're checking out on Stan. But Mitch, that's probably not the biggest news coming out of Stan Sport at the moment. There is a little documentary doing the rounds at the moment. The Wallabies inside Rugby World Cup. Give us your thoughts on that, mate. Yeah, Thursday night, that one did drop. So three one-hour episodes of this mini-series that takes you inside the Wallabies camp for their disastrous campaign at the World Cup in 2023. Um, overall, look, is it, I think personally it was a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, being a diehard rugby fan as we are and being as attached to the game, we kind of know so much around what happened. We weren't necessarily in the media rooms with Eddie Jones in the campaign in France but we followed it so closely that there wasn't really many surprises that I saw come out of it. Uh, we got a few glimpses in the documentary of some of the players' thoughts. Uh, the key one for mine was uh, James Slipper talking about the article that was uh, released the morning of the Wales game. And then he even mentioned or specifically addressed that he thought it was such shit timing that it was released that morning, um, which some people in some pundits have sort of highlighted as well, that there's an agenda there. Um, but yeah, I think overall it was really exciting to be able to see that inside look, get into the change room, hear what Eddie Jones was actually saying to the players. But overall, I didn't come out of it knowing much more than I went in. And I didn't feel like we really got an idea of how bad things got, how shambolic it really was in camp. There was a few elements here and there of talking about how um, the players wanted to know a little bit more around team selection and just what was happening in terms of who was injured and who wasn't. And, and Eddie Jones and the coaching staff were intentionally holding that information back. Almost like he didn't trust the players. He didn't trust them to not leak that information to the media. But um, yeah, I, I guess I was ho kind of hoping for a little bit more of an insight into maybe the tactical side of things of what Eddie Jones was actually trying to achieve at the World Cup. Cause we still come out of it and we think, I still think Eddie Jones didn't know what he was doing and it wasn't all that evident other than what he was saying to the camera at one, one or two places in the documentary that, oh, we've changed the squad now because we need to take a fresh approach. Well, he said that in the media. So there wasn't much, I guess, input in that part. What, what, what did you think, Lockie? Oh, mate, I came out of it just thinking two things, both concerning Eddie. A, that he's a knob, which we already knew, but he <laughs> just came across in such a grating manner, both when he was talking with the team and to the camera. And... The second feeling I got was he never had the change room. There are so many interactions where Eddie is talking at the players. He's telling them what's going on. He's telling them what they're going to do, but he's never engaged with them. And for me, the, the body language, the silence of the players in all these meetings when Eddie's just talking at them, and it doesn't matter what he's saying. They're not taking it in. From what I could see, it looked like it, there was a real wall up between the players and Eddie. And... I just, Eddie doesn't come out looking great, in my opinion. But go go watch it. I would encourage people to go and watch it and give it a, give it a whirl. But yeah, it didn't tell me anything I didn't already suspect about Eddie Jones, put it that way. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a good um, insight, particularly for the people, the sort of the fair weather fans of rugby who sort of heard the story of Eddie Jones and what was happening and followed the results of the World Cup, but maybe didn't follow the Wallabies as intently. Like you do get a fair bit of insight into... Um, you know, how the games went and why they went certain ways in the selection dilemmas and, and you know, the player injuries. I, I was interested that the player injuries seemed to be the real focus of this documentary. Like we focused so much on Taniel Tupo getting injured, then on Will Skelton getting injured, uh, James Slipper getting injured and playing through injuries. But we also didn't hear from enough of the players, I didn't think. I, I was, mm -hmm. I found it really interesting that, uh, in the tournament for the World Cup, Will Skelton's named captain, yet he didn't address the documentary once. Like we didn't hear from him. We didn't hear his thoughts, whether that's because he chose not to or he, on reflection, they've through editing, they've said, you know, maybe his media's contacted RA and said, actually, we don't want those inputs, you know, announced. I, I'm not too sure. Um, the other thing too that I was a little bit surprised by was that they've been following the Wallabies for like, what, six, seven, eight, nine months 
and filming nearly everything and we get a, a three-hour documentary out of it and we didn't get to see a hell of a lot. So I do wonder, um, there would be so much more uh, footage on the cutting room floor that would be really spicy. So I do wonder how much of a hand RA had on the editing process of this and how much they've kind of made themselves look just that tiny little bit better and not really shown exactly what went on. If there is ever an uncut version that comes out, that's the one that I want to watch. Oh, director's cut, absolutely. There was a couple of areas before we move on into our main chat that I'd like to say were really positive about the documentary. And that was some of the player features, like um, being at home with Alan Alatoa's family, seeing Nick White um, with his kids and his wife, um, sort of going behind the scenes a little bit was really engaging. I thought that was a great way for fans to connect with some of those leaders. But you're right, a couple of players I would have loved to hear more from, Will Skelton, Dave Parecki, and Quade Cooper. What yeah. an insight he would have had if they got him on early. So, <laughs> yeah, for the Fairweather fan, jump aboard, give it a whirl, and um, let us know what you think about it. Send us a message. Fantastic. Well, let's move across now. And so we are going to focus on the... We're going to call this <clears throat> the Super Rugby Review. And this is our wrap-up of Round 1 and all the results from Round 1 of Super Rugby Pacific 2024. Now, things did start off in Hamilton with the Chiefs hosting the Crusaders. Final score in this one was 33-29 to the Chiefs. This was a pretty exciting game by all accounts. It, the, the lead uh, changed sides a few times. It was 17-3, to I think, from memory at halftime. So the Chiefs were well and truly ahead of the Crusaders. But as we've come to expect in Super Rugby, you can never count the Crusaders off, and they came back with a vengeance in the second half. Never, ever write them off. It's the one thing that people should know by now about the Crusaders. Chiefs up 27-10 at the break. 27-10, was it? There we go. They were steaming over them, mate. And I couldn't believe that I was surprised in the second half seeing the Crusaders surge back in. I think they saw, they scored 19 points on the hop, so three tries coming in, and suddenly they were they were back ahead. It was amazing. So it took a late penalty goal. I think it was Joshuani came on, kicked a couple of late penalties for them. But what doesn't surprise me about the Crusaders is that they continue to find people to fill the holes. So they've lost Richie Moanga. Okay. In steps the next bloke. They've lost Will Jordan. In steps the next bloke. I think Chafe Fiaki was playing fullback for them, and he scored two tries. Yeah, where Will Jordan's away. I mean, it's this this ridiculous factory line <laughs> of players. But take nothing away from the Chiefs. Uh, the Chiefs. Sorry, I thought Tupo Vai did a really good job in the second row. Uh, Luke Jacobson, Sammy Penny Finau um, were unbelievable. And before he was injured, as you'd be painfully aware for your fantasy team, Mitch Damien McKenzie was looking brilliant in his 48 minutes on the field. Uh, was there anything else that you picked out of this one? Yeah, something that maybe came out of this game that wasn't necessarily the rugby on the field, and that was the controversy around the new smart mouth guards that's being initiated mm. throughout the tournament. Now, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know the full uh, agreements that have been made, whether everyone in Super Rugby Pacific this year is wearing a mouth guard or well, one of these smart mouth guards, or whether it's specifically the New Zealand teams that are wearing it because I did notice a few times in some of the Aussie games that the Aussie players weren't wearing mouth guards, Tupo, Taniel Tupo, uh, Tay McDermott, some players like that. Uh, but the the controversy came that there was... So for those that don't know, before I dive into the controversy, the players in Super Rugby Pacific in 2024 are wearing smart mouth guards. That are, um, they have chips in them that can read when there's been head inj- uh, sort of contact to the head of such a force that is going to require a HIA. And so what we saw in this game was there were two players throughout the 80 minutes whose mouth guard went off and sent a message to the sideline to the match doctors that they had received contact to the head of such a force that they required a HIA. But both of those players weren't aware of being hit in the head, weren't aware of what that force was or when it happened. And so when they got told by the referee to come to the sideline, they were completely complex and they didn't want to come off. Now, it, it's not a great look, and it depends. There's uh, Online, there's a lot of comments either side. There's the people that sort of sit in the camp of player safety and saying, like, if this is just an, an extra um, element of safety for the players, just do it, you know, come off and get assessed. If you do have a HIA, it's not worth risking it. But then there's the other side of the fence too that is saying, well, it's a step too far. It's too intrusive. We're not relying on technology to take players out of the contest, like we saw in this game, I think it was uh, who was it from the was it Quentin Strange? 
Yeah, Quentin Strange and the Crusaders, pretty yeah. early doors, but that late one to Anton Leonard Brown yeah. you know, with the game in the balance um, and taking off your centre when I think they were already down and back at that point as well. It was a huge turning point. And I think if the Chiefs had lost it, there'd be even more outcry um, over that, that late one for ALB. But certainly something to keep an eye on as we move forward and whether we see some of the Aussies impacted, maybe we prick our ears up a little more. But we've probably jump across over to the first Aussie game, Mitch, and that was yep. seeing the Melbourne Rebels host the Brumbies and it was not a good night for the hosts, was it? It was not what we expected at all. If you listened to this pod last week, both Ando and myself uh, on Thursday were talking up the Rebels and saying that we were expecting a really big emotional performance from them. And it was the exact opposite, unfortunately. Three points scored across the 80 minutes, 30 points conceded by the Brumbies, uh, to the Brumbies. Uh, they did have one try disallowed, but they never looked like convincingly having any pace in this game or taking the game by the scruff of the neck and dictating terms at all. That first try by Corey Tool was almost amateurish. There was just so much space and everyone just stopped. It just looked like it was in slow-mo. And I think even Corey Tool almost stopped and said, well, am, am I allowed to score this? There's no one around. Where, where's your fullback? Where's your winger? It's crazy. It was nuts. I mean, Tool was amazing. Don't get me wrong. Two tries to him, early doors. Charlie Kale, the big number eight coming out of nowhere, scoring a kick through try. I think he bagged two for the night as well. So he slotted straight in where Pete Samu left off, which is terrifying to think given the quality of the Brumbies pack. But just looking at the Rebels, uh, I think it was just a case of going a bit to water at set piece. The scrum was really good. I thought Matt Gibbon had some great moments at loose head, but the line out just went to water. There were five line-out losses, um, a lot of them in attacking positions as well, like really oh, had the chance sim- to do it. And simple and just- things, overthrows or yeah. just not meeting the mark. Like It wasn't even that it was turned over by a really dominant Brumbies defensive line-out. Some of them were just poor errors by the Rebels. It was, it was. And things, you know, seeing Rob Liotta get up, score a good try, that was great. Taniela Tupa had some good moments when he came on. Flip Danguno looked pretty good as well. But, I mean, it was just... It was not enough. There was not enough turnout across the park. Then I don't want to say that there was no heart, but it looked like a lot of life was sucked out of the Rebels for such a big occasion. Um, take nothing away from the Brumbies. Pretty clinical. I thought Noel Oliseo put his hand up and said, Oi, look at me yep. for the fly half roll. He was pretty composed in that as well. And just the Brumbies will look again like the leading side. I know pacing the Rebels is an easy thing to sort of write them off as being dominant, but they're looking pretty good ahead of what's going to be a massive game against the Chiefs in Super Round. And that's the, we'll talk more in our preview on, on Wednesday night around the, the matchups for Super Round playing down in Melbourne this weekend. But realistically, the Brumbies weren't challenged much in this game. They weren't tested really. And they, were, they did everything they needed to. Well done. Credit to them. They came away with a bonus point against a team that wasn't applying a lot of defensive pressure to them. So it'll be interesting to see if they can bounce things back and go into this Chiefs game with a little bit more momentum and a little bit more um, urgency, I guess, um, coming off a win like this. Let's keep moving and move into the final game of Friday night, and that was being played over in Perth, the Western Force hosting the Hurricanes. Now, I tipped the Force. I think Ando tipped the Force. Lockie, you tipped the Force as well in this game. and I tipped him too, and I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. I went with my heart. 44-14 in this one to the Hurricanes. Well and truly outclassed, almost very similar to the Rebels game uh, earlier on. The Western Force just, like, I don't want to say that they didn't play well. Well, they didn't play well all up, but they didn't not show up like the Rebels. They were still there in defense. They did score a few tries themselves. They were still evident throughout the game. They did make the Hurricanes work for it, but the Hurricanes just sort of took into a, a second gear in towards the sort of 60-minute mark where the Western Force were kind of just blown away by that point? Oh, unfortunately, I think it was just the pack. Uh, look at the losses for the Force going in. They expected to have Rodder. Rodder wasn't there. The captain, Jeremy Williams, wasn't there. Tom Robertson being away is a huge loss for them at loosehead. And then they also lose Harry Hooper in the week leading into the season. So, I mean, their scrum was just pumped, if we're honest. Six line-out losses as well. They couldn't keep it together. And the Hurricanes pack, yes, they were that arty. We may have been ripping them too hard and saying that they're just an arty team, but they really stepped up. Duplessis Kariffi was excellent. Um, they had some re- – Peter Lackey at number eight had a really good game as well, and they were just clinical. 
I think that's how you describe the Hurricanes' performance. 44-14, smacked him around. Um, maybe some positives out of Nick White and Ben Donaldson. There was a little bit of good coming out of them, but a pretty, a pretty weak light in what was otherwise a dark performance over in the West. Yeah, a pretty uh, dark night for Australian rugby in a lot of uh, fronts as well. A lot of people coming into the start of the competition with high hopes and and looking forward to the Aussies putting um, turning a corner, putting in a, a impressive performance, and we just didn't see that. So let's move across onto Saturday, where there was a derby that we'll focus on at the end, which was the Reds and the Waratahs, which was our match of the round in the preview. Uh, but the first game of the afternoon was the Blues hosting the Drua. Now, this one was a 34-10 victory to the Blues, a pretty good performance by the Blues there. The Drew are also hanging in there and and putting in some big defensive efforts, but still just not enough to kind of stop or worry this Blues outfit. Oh, the Blues pumped them, unfortunately. It was 29-3 at halftime, so it was game over at Oranges for all intents and purposes. Hoskins Satutu, Zahn Sullivan, they both went over for doubles in the first half. Caleb Clark got one of the world's easiest tries after the ball sort of skipped away for him. And aside from that, we didn't really see much out of the Drewer. They put in a big shift in the second half. Things obviously evened out um, nicely there. They actually won it. If you're going to count it, they won it 7-5. But that's not how it looks on the scoreboard. Um, interesting to note a young bloke out of the Drewer that a couple of pods and a couple of news outlets have been talking about, but Isaiah armstrong Ravola, who lined up at fly half for them. He got a yellow card, had a fairly quiet afternoon, but he is a bit of a goer if you're looking at bloodline related to Richie Moanga. I think he's his nephew. And <laughs> from the highlights from the under-20s World Championship last year for Fiji, the kid can play. So I'm going to keep an eye on him over the next couple of weeks. The Drew are only going to get better. And woe betide whoever's facing them first week up in Fiji. Yeah, it's, that's going to be a massive game. and No doubt they're already penciled that one in. Uh, looking forward to that. So the next game was the Highlanders hosting Moana Pacifica down in Dunedin. 35-21 was the final score to the Highlanders, but this was a really tight contest. And I think it was like in the 65th minute, scores were locked at 21 apiece. Uh, it was only in that last 15 minutes that the Highlanders kind of ran away with it. What were your thoughts on the performance from both of these teams? Yeah, I was really impressed with Moana, actually. it was um, They were up 18-14 at the half. Couple of great tries. Willie Harvilly was looking pretty good, um, running the cutter for Moana. But big raps on Jacob Wright and Matavuki Neekins, who came down from the Blues. He was kind of fringe player there, um, scored that amazing aerial try um, that we might remember from last year at Eden Park. But he was tearing them up from fullback for the Highlanders. And then, of course, the big fella, Timothy Tavatavanawai, now wearing Highlanders kit, yeah. scored a try against his old team just after the hour map, which really turned the game. And then from there, they kind of twisted the screws and um, Sammy Gilbert kicked really well, put them through to the end. So about what you'd expect, I think most people were tipping the Highlanders at home in a high-scoring kind of game to very offensively-oriented sides. Um, they'll both be tested um, a lot more, I think, as the season comes. But Highlanders, hey, yet to lose this season. It's true. And what, did you, what were your thoughts on Reese Patchell at 10? Yeah, pretty sharp, I thought. Um, for some reason, I expected him to be more kick-oriented. Yep. Uh, but he showed a little more in attack, which was nice to see. A uh, bit different to Freddie Burns from last year. Um, Freddie Burns bored me terribly as a 10 for the, for the Highlanders. But Patchell's got a, a bit of go about him. I still haven't forgiven him for his performance, knocking us out of, um, what was it, 2019 World Cup, kicked that early drop goal and really pissed us off in that game. Yeah. But it's good to see him down in Southern Hemisphere rugby. And, hey, if he's going to play some running rugby, I'm all for it. All right. Well, that gets us to the end of the pod this week. Nothing else to talk Boo! about. So let's talk about the Reds. Talk about the oh, Reds. Oh, was there another game? Was there, lucky? There was a brilliant game. Suncorp Stadium. Let me set the scene for you. The rain is pumping down. Caxton Street's flowing into Lang Park. It's looking beautiful. It's hot. It's steamy. And so were the Reds, who scorched a limp, insipid Waratahs. No, it wasn't that bad. Um, 40 points to 22. Reds get the bonus point win. Les Kiss, undefeated, greatest Queensland coach of all time. Darren Coleman, looking at a couple of tough weeks coming up with what the Crusaders and Highlanders. And then the back Blues. Weeks. But yep. let's talk about the big issue. I know we're going to talk about it. 
Max Jorgensen's yellow card. Everyone who's listening has probably seen this game, so rip straight in. Your take. Oh, geez. What a, what a game turner, really. Like up until that point, the game was mm. right in the balance. Both teams going at it, score lead, changing multiple times. And then we get Dolman and the Timo making that call. Now, look, there's it depends... It depends where you're listening from, what your IP address says here, whether you think it was a uh, legitimate call or not. And the answer is, if it's in Queensland, by the letter of the law and by the way that it was adjudicated, 100% correct. If you're anywhere else in the world, it was a harsh call and shouldn't have been called uh, against Jorgensen. Personally, I think, geez, where do we start? It's a harsh call. I, I don't disagree with the fact that he tackled... Pattaya early and yeah he I agree that he did tackle Pattaya early we went through the TMO process and we identified that that was the call and that's what they made and that's fine I would have liked to have seen that a penalty I would have been fine with it being a penalty and a penalty try but I thought just the yellow card the fact that for such a infringement to occur and for there to be literally a camera frame in it to determine whether it was early or not whether he touched him as he as Pattaya caught the ball or whether it was a fraction of a second early, the fact that we're going down to incremental camera angles frame by frame to determine whether a player has made an early call or not and then to get a yellow card from that is just, in my mind, it's too, it's too technical. It's too much that we're, we're almost going to looking for a reason to not award it or to uh, we're looking for a reason to you know, give the card in that instance. In real time, it looked simultaneous. And I, I would have, I also personally think that Pattaya drops that ball without Jorgensen tackling him either. Uh, we, but anyway, Lockie, what, what are your thoughts? I'm getting eyes. I'm getting eyes through the camera. Well, I just wish you were more supportive of our Australian match officials. Um, they work hard, Mitch. Yeah, the refs James Dolman's a, a Kiwi. Making... Shh, you ruined the narrative. No, it's a, it's a fair point. Look, um, Letter of the law, it's bang on. Is it a harsh call? Yes. But uh, try scoring opportunity infringed with what was technically foul play results always in a penalty try and a yellow card. So letter of the law, it went Queensland's way. And you're right, it was a huge moment that changed the game. From there, instead of being up at the break 15-14, Queensland lead 21-15 and they kicked on from there. Um, but... We'll st- try and steer away from that. There are a couple of interesting calls through there with a few forward passes that ultimately probably favoured <laughs> the Tars, but that certainly cancelled it Come out. Come on. With the no, card. you can't, with you the can't card. agree no, with, no, no, you no, can't no. Agree the TMO saying that they made the right call in in calling that a, 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 an infringement and a yellow card and a penalty try, but then say that through the process of adjudicating whether the pass left their hand back, that they made that incorrect. You can't have both. You take one or the Absolutely other. Absolutely, the made all oh, the right. I'm getting calls. lightheaded. I'm getting lightheaded up here on my high horse. We'll move. We'll move on to the game itself. And I got to be honest, I was really impressed with some of the attack from both teams. Um, Dylan Peach picking up a couple of well worked tries. Um, the in, uh, the intercept from Marky Mark was a great read with a three on one down the short side to put um, Jakey Gordon away. I thought that was excellent work from the Tars. But gee, there were some good moments out of the Reds. Jordy Pattaya at fullback. That boot really turned the game around for them in greasy and wet conditions. Yeah. He had that clearance on the rebound yeah. where he soccer kicked at 70 metres <laughs> almost to 50-22. Like it's, it's stuff that no one else can do yeah. in the competition, really. And I guess that sort of vindicates that contentious decision to pick him over Jock Campbell. Uh, I thought for a couple of standouts, I'll get you to give me some from the Tars, Mitch. From the red side, Matty Fazler um, did really well across the park, got his two mall tries, I thought Sarah Uru put in a really good shift uh, up front. And for the Reds' back row, Fraser McWright had a great game along with Harry Wilson and Liam Wright. Yeah, I think from the Tars' perspective, Jed Holloway had a great shift. Um, He didn't stand out by any means, but when you go back and actually look for his involvements, he was doing everything he needed to do. He was a pest at the breakdown. He slowed the ball down, holding players into rucks and that type of thing. So just the dark arts that you love to see from a second rower. Uh, I thought... Charlie Gamble and uh, and Lange Gleeson particularly, and Fergusley Warner for that matter, like the back three for the Waratahs were a little bit um, absent throughout the game. When you when we're going up against Queensland and they've got 
the likes of Fraser McWright and Harry Wilson, like arguably the two best open sides or two best back row players in Australian rugby. You need to be standing up and you need to be putting heat on them, getting them off the ball as quickly as you can and securing your own ball. But I just didn't think we did that and we allowed them too much opportunity at the breakdown. There's something that we had spoken about from the trial form leading into round one was that the Waratahs didn't defend enough of their ball or didn't attack the breakdown in, in defense. The the Reds um, still had a little bit too much of uh, too much sort of say at the breakdown in this game. I thought it was a lot better. The Waratahs did change their tactics and did defend their ball a little bit more. It, the, the start of the game was a little bit confusing with the referee calling both sides penalties for players not rolling away, um, even though the Jackal had won the ball at the turnover. So it almost seemed for the first maybe 15 minutes that both teams were a little bit unsure of how the breakdown was going to work. But I think overall, the Reds really did win that breakdown battle um, the scrum, I thought, held up for most parts. There was a few contentious calls too, where the, the scrum collapses and the ref just calls play on uh, when you've got players standing up in the front row and the ball's at the back, but he, he plays on. Uh, but regardless of that, I think both teams, the first half particularly, was a real battle and both teams uh, had an, a willingness to, to throw the ball around to play, to, to bring increase that physicality. Uh, but the second half, the Reds really just took it to another level, ran away with it, and the Tars just weren't able to contain them. Yeah, I agree with that assessment, especially of the second half. And all I can say is their meeting down in Sydney for the final round of Super Rugby, given we're expecting both of these teams to be pushing for a quarterfinal berth, is going to be so crucial, not just in the rivalry sense, but this could be a make or break for a top four or make or break to make the finals. And it's just going to be an even better affair. So I can't wait. I reckon I should come down and watch it with you guys. And oh, please do! That'd be a, yeah, that'd be you'll a, be that'd be a cracking day out. We'll treat you to the tar bar. You'll you'll be. We might have to get you a, a blue jacket because I don't know if the, we'll let a, a, a player wearing red into that area. But um, no, it'll oh, be I won't be seen dead wearing a tar's jersey at Alliance. Oh, we'll just get you a blue not. jacket. Doesn't have to be tar's. But um, <laughs> there is one. There is one talking point that's come out of this game, and that is the HIA or the. <laughs> the injury to Parisi. So the Waratahs mm. now moving forward, that has massive ramifications. So um, Parisi came off at halftime with a HIA and this wasn't picked up through the, the smart mouth guards. It wasn't picked up by the sideline doctor. He actually said to the Waratahs medical team at halftime, like, I don't feel good. I don't feel well. I've got some symptoms coming on. And so he then did a HIA, failed it and didn't come back for the second half. Now the, I guess the, the promising thing for the Waratahs in some ways is that the replacements didn't weren't a massive drop-off. Like they weren't the same ball uh, or tackle-busting ability that Parisi has and the physicality that he was bringing, with, particularly with Hunter Paisami, wasn't there. But they did. there wasn't a, a massive drop-off in talent or they scored a lot of tries or uh, made breaks through our centres pairing, which was good. The, the issue for mine is that in about the 35th, 36th minute of the half, there's a contact down in the red in the Waratahs twenty uh, the Reds twenty two Waratahs are on attack. Parisi has the ball. Paisami runs up out of the line, standing up, and they head clash. It's pretty evident in the replay. There's clear contact. There's that force head on head contact, and it's not reviewed. Parisi then comes off for a HIA and doesn't return for the game. It's not reviewed by the TMO at this point of the time we go to recording. It hasn't been picked up by the judiciary either. Uh, I'm not not trying to be a salty Waratahs fan after the loss, but we need to get these calls right, particularly when there's ramifications around uh, players now missing out on games. Parisi's failed a HIA, so at, as much as I understand it, there's a 10-day stand down now, so he won't be available for round two. He might be back for round three against the Highlanders at home if he does pass all of those concussion symptoms moving forward. But the fact that it hasn't been picked up and as Waratahs fans, we're sitting at home and we see that contact. We hear it on the mics. We can see that there's been head contact and it's not picked up by the officials. That's just frustrating. I totally agree. And it's it put like you put the shoe on the other foot. If it happened to a Queensland player, I'd be blowing up as well. And we've seen it so often through the World Cup, just gone the Men's World Cup. Those head high collisions, they determined the World Cup final. I mean, Sam Kane went off for one. Yeah. Um, see Khaleesi had a yellow. We saw another one in a critical game where South Africa was playing where Jesse Creel basically headbutts a bloke and he stays on the field. So there's very little consistency around those head collisions. I agree 100% that that needs to be an area where we have a strict yes or no. If it's shown on the replay and you pick it up and there is head-on-head contact, 
that is X. Whatever the result is, it needs to be consistent. Whether it's yeah. you get sent off to get checked, whether it's a yellow, whether it's a red, by the letter of the law, should be a red card, head-on-head contact. Yeah. It's just frustrating that it wasn't picked up and that it wasn't adjudicated on the spot because it could have changed the ramifications of the rest of the the, the game, particularly it would be a yellow card involved that's head-on-head contact with very little mitigation. And now you lose a Wallaby for your game against the Crusaders, which is a huge game. They're coming off a loss. They're coming to Super Round ready to flog some Tars and you yep. don't have the incumbent Wallaby 13. So yeah, huge, so- huge ramifications. It's a massive result, but um, it is what it is. We will see what happens. Maybe it's something's happening behind the scenes as we speak and something will come out early tomorrow. Uh, but in saying that, I think that brings us to the end of our wrap-up for round one. I guess overall, let's just, we've got, actually, no, that reminds me, we do have the standings before we finish things up. So in current, currently, as um, as we go to record, we've got the Hurricanes in first place, followed by the Brumbies in second, Blues in third, Queensland Reds in fourth. That doesn't feel right. Uh, Highlanders in fifth. <laughs> Chiefs in sixth. Crusaders in seventh. Moana Pacifica in eighth. Waratahs in ninth. Drill in tenth. Rebels in eleventh. And Western Force in twelfth. Now, I'll get your final thoughts before we finish up the pod for this week. What What are your, as an Australian rugby fan, we were so excited coming into round one that there would be a, an improvement uh, in the the divide between Australia and New Zealand. The few results that we've had, particularly the ones that were Australia and New Zealand components, particularly that uh, Force and Hurricanes game, we will see more as the competition moves forward. But how optimistic are you feeling? Has the gap widened? Has the gap shortened? How are you feeling? It's impossible to tell after one round, but from what I've seen, I'm much less confident about the Rebels given their result. Force, we were very optimistic, I think, going in given their last um, home season record from 2023. But at the current point in time, heading into Super Round, I'm expecting big things from the Brumbies and the Reds. Outside of that, I'm not confident about the Australian teams going to this one. But we've seen stranger things happen. Um, and the Rebels at Super Round, they're coming up against the Force, so another derby there. Really excited to see how it pans out. So make sure you tune in to our Thursday morning pod as we preview everything from Super Round. A couple of great games coming up over there. And if you're in Melbourne, get yourself a ticket, get down, support, and make sure if you're a Tars fan, use our code PICK to get $20 gold tickets to the round three game between the Tars and the Highlanders. Mitch, anything else before we wrap up? No, looking forward to previewing Super Round uh, for 2024 next Wednesday night, our time, uh, out on Thursday morning. So lots of rugby to talk about in Melbourne this week. Hopefully the crowd does turn up. Hopefully the the Melbourne fans or the Victorian rugby fans do support their teams and get out and it'll be a grand, fantastic time. We've seen in the past few years, the first year was a little bit hit and miss with Super Round. Last year was much better. If we can go off that, I think this is going to be an absolute cracker. Probably the last time it will be down in Melbourne. So if you are a Melbourne-based rugby fan and been thinking, oh, I might go next year, this is not. This is your last opportunity. Make this sure you year. get there. This is the year. This is the year. Get there, support the Rebels, support everything Super Rugby. It's going to be a cracker. Amazing. All righty. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us again. We will catch you Thursday morning on the airwaves. Until next time, bye. Bye. Bye.